All right. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Scott Shepard, and I'm the host and founder of the City's First podcast. We're really excited today to have uh, Salika Josiah Talbot, uh, who is an industry leader in autonomy, electrification, as well as all things related to future mobility. And it's a real pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good morning, Scott. Yeah, this is a real pleasure. And I know we're kind of multiple time zones here. So I'm here in Lisbon, Portugal, and you're in my hometown of Los Angeles, but uh, we're able to make it work. So that's kind of the beauty of our podcast and the reach of our audience. So we're really starting to kind of uh, bridge the gap in terms of, let's say, mobility innovation in the U.S., North America, and here in Europe as well, too. So um, our audience is growing, and you're, you're kind of part of the community that we're building. So, you know, we're really happy to have you. <laughs> um, so we'll get started. And uh, as the audience and the viewers kind of know our theme and our format, um, we'll just uh, kick things off. I'll uh, kind of go over your bio. Um, we'll uh, pose a few questions for you that we'll have uh, basically as a nice conversation, kind of go through some of the uh, exploration and do a deep dive into your insights. Then we'll just kind of shine a spotlight into a look ahead for the next 24 months, basically what you see in terms of crystal ball for mobility tech and autonomy. Um, and then we'll just kind of wrap things up where audience and the viewers can find you on social media and whatnot. So with that, um, we'll get started here. Uh, so um, let me kind of just go through the uh, bio and then we'll kick things off. So a first in many spaces, Salika Josiah Talbot is known by her colleagues as an influential agent for positive change who leads with confidence and approaches the most difficult and complex challenges with perseverance and commitment to success. As the founder and CEO of Autonomous Vehicle Consulting, Salika is a leading industry voice for respons responsible investment, engagement and preparation for new mobility including robot delivery, autonomous and electric vehicles, and self-driven freight. Salika served as the Deputy Administrator of the New Jersey Motor Vehicle Commission as gubernatorial appointee. Most recently, Salika served at the U.S. Department of Transportation Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration as the Senior Advisor to the Administrator. So very impressive credentials and uh, a real strong background at the federal level and uh, at the state level as well, too. So we're really, really excited to kind of do this deep dive. Um, and with that, we'll just kind of kick things off and get started um, with our format and our questions. So the first question that I'll kind of pose to you, and it's really a burning topic that's really um, top of mind for urban planners, policymakers, as well as others in the mobility tech space is around Vision Zero. So very broad question, but just we'll kind of uh, take multiple paths to this is, What's basically the path forward for Vision Zero in the US uh, from what we've seen over the last few years of implementations by states and cities and many different um, outcomes related to pedestrian safety, uh, cycle safety, as well as uh, a lot of the um, conflict and pain points that we've seen uh, during the COVID pandemic as well too. So what's, what's your take on that? You know, it might seem like an, an easy question that you're asking up front, Vision Zero. We've all been marching towards the idea or the notion that um, we're going to remove all crashes. We're going to prevent deaths and injuries on our roadways. And the um, the premise behind it is a good premise. It is well-meaning, um, but I think it's lost its zizzle, its dazzle, uh, the spark to Vision Zero. The general public doesn't really understand what it means. Um, 
people don't know about the amount of people who are dying on our roadways every day. You have people probably more afraid to fly than they are to drive, yet driving, we know statistically, is much more dangerous. I think we have to change our language. I think we have to go back to basics and start to teach education. Um, in more states than not, children don't get a driver's license education if they want it. Um, we don't teach basic mobility education, and yet we're putting more and more transportation options into our ecosystem. So now we have scooters and e-bikes and robot delivery and all these other things that we've added to an environment that was already dangerous yeah. and said, good luck. Mm -hmm. The other part of that is if we... If Vision Zero says we are going to attack it through enforcement of laws on our roadways, well, we can see that that also is not working very well. Um, I like to do this litmus test when I go to a new place. I just came back from vacation and I ask people, do you know if it's legal to um, to ride a bicycle on the sub on the sidewalks in the town that you live in? Most people don't know the answer to that question, or they presume it's a state responsibility. And I don't know. The state is not drawing the line here. It's essentially town by town and city by city. So if you come from a place that says you can write it on the sidewalk and you go to a place that doesn't allow you to write it on the sidewalk, where was that notification? We know it's from 25 to 35 or 50 miles an hour. We have a sign and it tells us. But the other things that we do regularly that we are encouraging people to do because we say this will reduce congestion or reduce traffic accidents, reduce deaths and, and injury. We are not educating the public. I, I selfishly, because I, I, this is my life's work now. I, um, if I'm marching to this drum, then we need to require basic mobility education in schools. And I think that that will do far more than platitudes and campaigns like Vision Zero. Yeah, yeah. So it starts uh, at an early age. It starts in the educational system, um, and it has to kind of uh, work its way through kind of all uh, aspects of society, really, um, for it to resonate. Because like you said, the platitudes and the kind of the high-level policy goals, certainly that are set forth at the uh, federal level, and even at the state level, uh, fail to deliver the results related to, you know, performance measures that the, the expectations are set forth. And uh, which is why we kind of, I don't want to say we set up ourselves up for failure in the U.S., but then we start comparing to other countries and other areas where we say, hey, well, look at how they're doing, like in Oslo, Norway, right? Like, well, you know, zero pedestrian fatalities. Why can't we be like Oslo? I hear that all the time, right? Well, you know, there's obviously different historical and cultural and geographic factors. You know, there's a lot of other context to it, but, you know, uh, if we are setting ourselves up for failure, then uh, I, I completely agree that um, we need to, you know, get back to basics and also focus on, um, you know, uh, really educating the entire society in terms of, how, uh, what, what, what is the importance as well as, so that we can navigate this patchwork of 
laws and regulations at the local municipal level, because that's really where the rubber hits the road to pardon the pun here, <laughs> because, you know, you move, you know, for, for, let's take the LA example, you go from Culver City to LA, or you go to Santa Monica, or then you're going to Inglewood or Beverly Hills. It's like, well, each city in Los Angeles County is going to have its own laws. What do you do? Right. I mean, not every Angelino in Los Angeles County, a county of over 12 million people is going to know each of the 100 plus municipal laws in uh, you know America's largest county, right? So that's just a perfect case in point right there. I'm gonna give you another, I, I think it's important for me to share this example. I've begun to talk about it because I think it really, you know, really drills home this point. Um, I'm an East Coaster, you can still hear my New York accent. I can I think hear a little it, accent, yeah. <laughs> and I'm a West Coaster, I'm an Angelina, yeah. so here we come together. <laughs> I um, I lived in New York for a long time, born and raised, lived in New Jersey for over 20 years, lived in Washington, D.C. for over six years. And from the time that I had my driver's license as a, as a teenager, all throughout those ju- jurisdictions, I never had to um, take a, a road test or a written test, mm-hmm. move from one state to the next and sort of grandfathered in, mm-hmm. sign on the dotted line, here's your driver's license. And then, as you know, um, a little over a year and a half ago, I moved to Los Angeles. And California says, you have to take a driver's license test. Oh, yeah, that's sounding. You don't have to be on the road, but you certainly have to take a written test. Oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> and um, and I guess maybe it's near and dear to my heart because, you know, I ran operations for the state of New Jersey's Motor Vehicle Commission. But um, I studied because I don't like to fail. So I wanted to ensure that I was going to pass it on the first try. And I know this, but again, it's something that I think the general public doesn't understand enough. Um, Taking the written test, and one of the questions was about lane splitting. Mm-hmm. So in California, it is perfectly legal legal for a motorcycle to drive between the lanes. Mm-hmm. It's not an exception to the rule. It's expected. And when you're on the highway, it's also another reason that we should stress looking to your left and looking to your right and making sure that you're viewing your blind spots um, because a motorcycle could be driving between the lanes. It's important to use your indicators and all of that. Well, on the East Coast, it is not legal. In fact, um, in New York, if you are lane splitting, you are likely to get an appendage thrown up at you um, on the highway um, and maybe some exclamation X's, pound signs uh, thrown at you for your conduct. But what happens when a New Yorker on vacation in California is driving and someone is lane splitting next to them. What's their reaction here? Well, they don't even know that it's illegal in this state or for the Californian. If that goes to New York, that's even more problematic. They try to lane split, right? And tries to lane split. Oh my. It's, we have, I, I love, I love the country that I was born and raised in. But boy, are we making it difficult for people to move. Mm-hmm. And we set them up for really bad outcomes. So the New Yorker in California might get themselves into trouble if they're unhappy that someone's lane splitting. And the motorcyclist who's driving from California and in New York might find themselves with a ticket or more based on their conduct because we don't know. We don't teach those things. We don't share that information. And because it is so 
variable from state to state. Right. It yeah. means we're it's setting ourselves up for cat for crashes and injuries and even deaths in those circumstances. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I can layer that in on this side of the pond in Europe. Oh, that's not, unless you kind of isolate a few countries such as Germany. I know you spent some time in Germany recently. Um, any country that's more of a federal republic uh, tends to devolve state uh, power down to the more of the state and the local level. So, you know, you have local uh, decisions within the German states, which is kind of analogous to the, the U.S. states in a way. But the rest of Europe is much more centralist, whether it's uh, Spain, Portugal, France, uh, et cetera. So power is basically vested, as you know, you know, in the central government. So, and that applies to mobility. So mobility laws, rules, legislation, at least here in Portugal, Spain, Italy is a bit more consistent. I'm not saying it's perfect or better than the US, but it's an interesting kind of um, uh, comparison because you can see this translate uh, for us who are working in the mobility space on both sides of the Atlantic, how we kind of uh, you know deal with these challenges and differences across modalities, whether it's e-scooters, because I'm in the e-scooter space, or for you in AVs, et cetera. And um, it just, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, there, there's no you know silver bullet, but uh, it's something we need to be cognizant of for certain. Right. Yeah. I, think that's, I think that's the point I'm trying to make is, yeah. um, States have operational authority. The federal government has the federal motor vehicle safety standards. I'm I'm not even suggesting that states don't continue their operational authority. If they didn't have that, I probably wouldn't have had a job years ago. <laughs> that was that was your former job. <laughs> what I am saying though is we need to explain to people that the rules are different depending on what city you're on in or what yeah. state you're in. And that those have implications for how you move on your roadway. And you're correct. You know, Germany might be allowing um, sort of more local, more locally based decisions, but boy, is it harder to get a driver's license there than it is in the United States. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's, it's tough. Yeah, I, I used to work for a German company myself too in Berlin, and yes, I heard about the, <laughs> the interesting. <laughs> yes, yes, the interesting processes. I don't want to use red tape, but processes. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I think we'll probably move on to our next question here. Um, so uh, basically, I want to talk about um, uh, public and private stakeholders So uh, and pilot projects. So the question for you is, how can public and private stakeholders move past pilot project fatigue towards long-term mo mobility solutions? So this is kind of a question that I curated for you, only because in my personal view, uh, I believe that we have pilot project fatigue in the mobility space uh, during and post smart cities movement, I would say circa 2016, 2017, up until COVID and even beyond. And how do we operationalize and put these into um, long-term uh, public procurements, RFPs and multi-year contracts? Um, boy, that that's a really good question. Um, I think, one of the reasons it becomes um, sort of a knee jerk for regulatory agencies to accept these pilot programs is because it gets them to a space of trying new mobilities much faster than if they went out for an, a traditional RFP. Um, we've created so much red tape in, um, in government spaces that we make it virtually impossible for government to be innovative in any way, shape or form, but for a pilot project or program. 
And so once they start, government says, well, why would I stop this? If I, if I determine that I'm going to go to an RFP, um, it might preclude the very actor that I have a relationship with now that is offering this program in my city. And um, the pathway there, you know, even once we award, someone will protest that award mm-hmm. and they spend a year or two either in litigation or in system processes, either at the state or federal government, before we can then settle on a source who then has a limited time within which to operate. So the the solution often comes from the public. Um, I'd say this because part of me is reticent because I, I am concerned with access issues in transportation, who has accessed, the kinds of access we allow, what communities are often shut out as we move towards better transportation options. But if we're waiting for the government, you're, ex- you're exactly right. We will be fatigued, stressed, frustrated over a um, a system mm-hmm. that is not designed to be agile. Uh, it, I think when when we start to look at new funding um, at the federal level, when we start to look at opportunities at the state level, I, I really say that this is the time for government to maybe create carve-outs for the transportation industry because we are moving so rapidly that the traditional way that we have done things isn't working anymore. If I want scooters, if I want robot delivery, God, if I want um, great EV charging infrastructure and you know, in my dream of dreams, widespread autonomous vehicle usage, then the, then the, the processes and systems we have in place today won't work. And the and public sector is not going to be able to take the lead because that lead will then only slow the innovation. It, we have to turn and start to look at how can private industry pull government along in this instance rather than um, the public space by itself determining where, when, and how. Just We just don't possess um, the bandwidth for that or um, the bureaucratic um, operations that we have in place really will stymie innovation. And it seems like there's such a gap. I, I agree with what you're saying. There's such a gap between um, you know what is tangible at the pilot project level and governments being very akin to that, and you know more the traditionalist uh, bureaucratic structure around you know public procurements and uh, RFPs. And there's not any, it seems at least in the U.S. or many different instances in the mobility space, there's no gray area. There's no gray area to jump from pilot project to the traditional RFP. And I don't see that happening. Obviously, there's learnings from other countries. I'll have to use the European example here. I'm sorry, but I'll layer this in because I'm on the side of the pond. But like in the Netherlands, you have the triple helix model, which, you know, public, private and academia. And it's a real quick, quick to market, quick to innovation procurement. You're very familiar with that, I know. Um, And maybe the audience is too. But there's other learnings that maybe cities uh, and governments can really deploy to operationalize uh, new mobility solutions that are post-pilot project, but not 
multi-year uh, tenders or RFPs that are so, um, uh, you know, uh, Byzantine <laughs> that they're crushed under their own bureaucratic yeah. weight. And you go through this entire kind of litigious process. They're very Byzantine to use that term. And, you know, we, we talk about all these other governments in uh, across the world that are very bureaucratic, but back home in the U.S., I mean, really, I think bureaucracy crushes us in terms of just uh, sourcing, uh, you know, services for the government sector and really the mobility space and how there's been such rapid innovation from Silicon Valley and other actors over the last four or five years uh, really lays bare that, um, I would say, that, uh, that, that, that burning issue. And it, 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 there's room for improvement. I've written some articles myself on that. I'm sure you've spoken about that a lot yourself. And I'd like to see more gray area between the pilot project and you know the traditional procurements, but I don't see it happening yet. <laughs> you know, one of the things that that happened is, um, and certainly before I worked in government, either at the state or federal level, you know, you want to snap your fingers and have it done instantly. Why is this taking government so long? And then once you're sort of inside, or 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 now you're seeing how the sauce is made you have an understanding that you don't want government to move um, at the blink of an eye. If it did, our um, processes, the way that we um, interact would literally be lurching back and forth from one administration to the next, from one director to the next, from one administrator to the next, and you'd have whiplash as a nation. So you certainly don't want government to move like that. But there is, as you say, this gray area between snapping your fingers and moving like the Titanic. Exactly. Um, right. Yeah. Where's the, that gray area? <laughs> right. There's, there's a little space in between. Yeah. And and that space is most especially in transportation where we need to be. Mm-hmm. If you think about government, I'll give a, an example outside of transportation. If you think about how government is addressed. Um, privacy laws mm-hmm. and the internet mm-hmm. um, and and our ability to protect um, our personal and private information, the, the government hasn't sealed the deal on that yet. Or a few uh, patchwork state laws like California has their law, Massachusetts, right. and what is it, like 40, 45 states have no laws on the books right now, I think, for that. And we didn't get the internet yesterday. <laughs> It's been around a while. So it's, you know, we, we've had a little time. To yeah, kind of yeah. And yet we don't have an agreement. We don't have real, true federal policy to address these issues. Yeah, American GDPR, basically. Where is it? And then here comes um, connected and shared mobility and then mm-hmm. electrification mm-hmm. and an autonomous vehicle. Yeah. The government says, well, we can't even agree what should be driven, where it should be driven, um, who should be in the vehicle, how the vehicle moves on our roadways. It, it, it is almost um, disheartening. If you think about what we've been able to do in terms of protection for privacy and communications over the internet. And then when you say, well, well where does that leave us in the connected autonomous shared and electric space? When are they going to get to us? People have been calling for action for a while. We've been saying this 2,500 vehicle minimum is not enough 
to really assist in widespread usage. I say, I'm going to look at it the converse way. Don't tell me what I can do in autonomous vehicle world. Tell me what I can't do. Mm-hmm. Just, just say, oh, yeah. that's a good point. Just, just yep. say, we're going to rule out. Um, and I know the AV folks out there won't be happy with me when I say this, but I, I say it and I mean it. Um, I think the federal government should say we're not going to move hazardous materials on autonomous vehicles. Not at this juncture. We're not ready to move hazardous materials in that fashion. We want a person aboard. Yeah. Just say that. Just find a carve out that a, a people who are pushing back against autonomous vehicles say, oh, oh well, that makes sense. If they're going to say that, I maybe I could start to look at the rest of this in a positive manner. Or say we're not going to move um, livestock on an autonomous vehicle, generally going on a 150 mile radius. And, you know, when the chickens are all over the road, you might want someone there immediately. I think that'd be um, a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that. Just, just have somebody say that. Yeah. But instead, we're not saying anything, saying mm. that we are not going to impede innovation, but we um, support safety is not a policy, it's a slogan. Or it's a platitude, like you said. It's just very, it's and, an empty and it, statement. And it gets us nowhere. Yeah. It really does. So, um, you know, I'm I'm not shy because um, I'm hoping that, that people in the right spaces listen and understand how they are frankly damaging innovation. They are impeding it. We can't move forward if we don't have any policy or guidance, if we think that we as a as a nation are required to have federal arms around most or if not all transportation, why are we refusing to put federal arms around this or to acknowledge that you don't possess the requisite knowledge to properly oversee this area of transportation? And if that's the case, then you farm it out to someone who can yeah, who's the uh, lead, uh, you know, stakeholder that can actually uh, move that forward? Uh, because again, if it's not at the federal level, even though we've seen much support at the federal level for new innovation during this, let's say, peak smart cities hype circa 2016, 2017, pre-COVID, when the uh, proverbial rubber hits the road and we're looking for uh, policy guidance and actual, um, let's say, frameworks and structures moving forward, um, the ball is being dropped, though. So, yeah, we do need to you know, figure out who else can kind of lead that charge. Um, so kind of our final question, I think we have time for one more quick question here, is um, about your book. So let's talk about that real fast. So um, how did your recent children's book, Sammy and Sally Mobility Series, come about? Maybe you can tell us about that really briefly. Um, I, it's all wrapped up in the in the things that I do. I practiced law for 20 years. Um, as a product liability defense lawyer, I represented franchises and spent a period of time doing um, criminal defense and um, even teaching how to defend a car crash from corporate side. I, I link that with the work that I did at the state and federal level and really circles back to the conversation that we started having about um, Vision Zero and, and learning for our children on our roadways. We keep pushing all these wonderful innovations um, into the ecosystem, into our network of mobility. And yet we're not teaching 
people how to move. I, when I'm on the roadway, at least once a week, if not sometimes once a day, I see some scooter zoom past some car who didn't see the scooter, I can tell, and is making a turn someplace. I see kids who don't stop for stop signs. I see cars with adults um, don't have their seat belts on. I, I just um, came back from Jamaica. The, the trip from Ocho Rios back to the airport in Montego Bay, um, our driver was stopped because he didn't have a seatbelt on. Mm -hmm. He's driving for a living, which means you're spending an awful lot of time on the roadway, no seatbelt. Wow. Sammy and Sally is meant to start the conversation, mm -hmm. to address new mobility, not just for the children, but for the parents. We, we know from an educational standpoint that when we are speaking to young children, elementary school age children, you're also speaking to the parent at the same time. So the conversations in the book, it's really just the story of a family and, and lovable Sammy and Sally who move around town, whether they're on a bicycle or they uh, interact with scooters or one wheelers, trucks, um, that how do you move around the road? How do we tell a story so that it feels comfortable? It feels natural. Um, the kids wear, wear helmets. Why, are, this is a, you know, I'm gonna circle back to vision zero again. If I have to wear a helmet in my suburban town when I ride around my neighborhood, why can I go to a city on vacation and rent a scooter or a bicycle and not be required to wear a helmet? We have laws and rules that make absolutely no sense. Protection and safety should be concepts that are taught at a very young age that carry through um, as we are adults and then as we begin to raise our own families seatbelts, helmets, eye contact, understanding that there are other people in our ecosystem, but also to introduce new mobility. So in the book, Sammy and Sally also have the opportunity to see a robot delivery, sort of what I call in the wild. Oh. But they get to see a robot delivery, uh, a Kiwi bot in their neighborhood. And their mother explains to them what that, that robot delivery does. It's aiding people who otherwise wouldn't have that transportation option. So that's how the series came about. I, I, um, as my, my girlfriend says, I, I gave birth to the idea. I started sketching it out when I wrote it first um, and sent it to the illustrator. She said, this is not a book. This is a series of books. Yeah, and so, yeah definitely. So we cut down the first one to essentially two short stories. Mm -hmm. Lisa Bailey, who's also an educator and a mom and heavily involved in the autonomous vehicle industry, uh, sort of helped me bring it to light. But I want to just especially give thanks to my illustrator, Princess Caribou. The reason that this book is self-published, um, because there were publishers who thought it was a great idea, said that they wanted to um, provide the illustrator for me. And I wanted a specific illustrator because the, the figures in the book is a family of black people. And I wanted them to look just like the black people that I know in my community and just like the, the children that my my kids knew. And so the illustrations, uh, frankly, are gorgeous. They, yeah. um, they really make you want to turn the page and see this family and see how they travel and move throughout town. Well, I'll be ordering my copy too. So really excited to see that. We'll be Certainly promoting that, um, you know, after we publish the podcast, everyone can get a link to that, but really excited. And it sounds like you've 
really, um, you know, filled a, a, a real niche in terms of mobility education that has not been uh, brought to bear yet. So I think that you're on to a really um, prescient idea here. So congratulations on that. I'm really happy to, to see that uh, kind of series and uh, future uh, books that you're going to be telling stories of as well, too. So that'll be really great to see. Mm-hmm. Um, good. So I think uh, we'll kind of wind things down here, but I'm going to open it up for just a little bit of thoughts now. Um, maybe if you could just spend just a few minutes uh, giving us your crystal ball. So we do this on the City's First podcast. So uh, tell us maybe what you think is going to be on the horizon in the next 24 months, given uh, what's been happening with Silicon Valley Bank. We, everyone knows about that. <laughs> we all know about uh, what's happening with inflation. We know about all these macroeconomic issues, but Back to mobility. Uh, many of us, you and me and many others, aren't leaving mobility anytime soon. We're in this industry. We're in the thick of it. So it's not like we're checking out and going to the next venture. So for those of us in new mobility, especially in like autonomy and other modalities, um, where do you think we're going to be at in the next uh, 24 months in terms of uh, innovation and just general trends? Okay, so that leads me to my tagline, which is transportation is mobility and mobility is freedom. Either we have to go to goods and services or goods and services have to come to us. That's how we live. And the work that we do for those of us in the transportation industry is around the movement of people, goods, and information. So if I'm looking at Um, what we call the near-term future, I think there'll be a realization um, as we lose more and more people in in the workspace where labor shortages continue. Um, Even those who may not have wanted to adopt autonomy are really going to have to start saying, wow, um, this is a necessity for us to survive as a people. The average age of a truck driver in the United States is older than 57. Um, But we we don't wait for stuff to get delivered in a week or 10 days anymore. Um, One or two days is about all we can handle. And if we get lucky, we we get it in a few hours. Instant gratification, yes. (laughs) Someone has to move those goods. Um, we're working from home more, but only for certain um, types of careers. We may not travel out of our houses in the same um, fashion that we did before, but boy, someone is bringing you your lunch now or someone is bringing you your groceries. Um, if you go to the store, the things that that even retailers used to carry in a in a in a clothing store, they don't have on the shelves anymore. You have to order it online and have it come to your house, try on it, figure it out, and and then take it back to the store. So when I look at the future of transportation, I think we'll be moving more and more goods um, by autonomy, um, even in the short term. I think we'll embrace um, autonomous vehicles in spaces that we may not have the general public may not think about. So in it, where it's dangerous, maybe in mining, um, you know, we see we see people using autonomy in mining now, those percentages of that industry will increase greatly. In farming, 
or using autonomy. We will see those percentages increase greatly. At ports, where there's a significant labor shortage, we will see increases in the use of autonomy. And when we get accustomed to and perfect it in those separate spaces, it will help to seed greater confidence in using autonomous vehicles in the movement of people. But we have to figure out some of these other things as well. We talk about autonomous vehicles. Well, autonomous vehicles have to be electric in most places. Mm-hmm. So if we don't get electrification right, we can't get to autonomous vehicles. It's all connected. Yeah, of course. It is all, all connected. A third of our EV charging stations don't work. We have to create confidence in a system where people are even willing to consider purchasing an electric vehicle, which means we have to do better for the infrastructure. Well, if you're doing better for the infrastructure, who's going to be able to afford a new EV? You know, I I have said it a a number of times that Frozenberry Porsche Taycan is my favorite EV. It's a pretty car. It rides wonderfully. But at $118,000, it is nowhere near being under my Christmas tree. I know, yeah. The average American is paying $700 a month for a car note. And now people who, in some respects, maybe you're making $15, $20 an hour. How do you afford a home? How do you afford a, a new car? How do you afford an EV charger? Is an EV charger possible in your apartment? I know. I, I have to actually uh, segue really quickly. We're running out of time. We have about another uh, minute left. So where can everyone find you? And then we'll have to sign off here. Sure. SBJ ESQ is um, me on Twitter, on Instagram, um, probably any social media that I have that's usually SBJ ESQ. But I am regularly on LinkedIn and um, will communicate with anybody who reaches out to me there. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Salika. It's been a real treat, real pleasure. Uh, We'll have this podcast up probably today or tomorrow, and we'll be promoting your book as well as all of your links, your work, your thought leadership. I know you're on panels frequently. I think you just spoke recently at Caltech. I saw your panel on autonomy there, right, in my hometown of Pasadena. So that was really exciting. So thank you so much, Salika. It's been a real pleasure. And hopefully we can have a part two at some point in the future. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thank you. Take care.